Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Episode 175 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Time to put up or shut up. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. Welcome to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hahn. Thank you for liking, rating, reviewing, subscribing, telling your friends about the podcast. Great guests. Today, I have two guests at once, Major Garrett from CBS News and David Becker, who you may have also seen on CBS News. Uh, We're going to be talking about their new book, The Big Truth. Um, You know, we've been talking about The Big Lie. We've been talking about January 6th and the election and where we are in our politics. Uh, So I'm going to have a great conversation with them coming up in a few minutes. You don't want to miss that. But, you know, let me just talk about the elections that are coming up. I mean, we've all this weekend probably got inundated by, uh, you know, by, by the sights of candidates, uh, debating and not debating. And and let me start in Georgia where, you know, I think is, is a pivotal race going on in Georgia. I, I look, the best thing you can have in politics is low expectations. And the bar for Herschel Walker to clear was extremely low. That said, I don't think pulling out a fake police badge on stage, pretending to be a police officer when you're running for the United States Senate is a good move. And I heard all the pundits over the weekend saying that Herschel Walker, he was so much better. Yeah, because we we thought he would go up on stage and like babble incoherently. And when he strung together a few, you know, talking points, when he remembered to try to tie his opponent to uh, Joe Biden every chance he could. Oh, my God, he's he, he's so much better than we thought. No, he still had no policy positions. He still babbled incoherently. And again, when he was confronted about the fact that he impersonates a police officer and has been into a, you know, basically threatened a firefight with the FBI, he pulled out a fake police badge, an honorary badge he got from some precinct that he carries like he's a cop. Now, if you don't see a problem with that, you're probably not listening to this podcast. Let's just leave it right there, right? There is something mentally wrong with somebody who would do that. And and again, I don't want to make fun of him. I said this a couple weeks ago. I almost feel bad picking on him. But when pundits are running around saying how great he was, you, you got to point these things out. And and by the way, if he was so great, why won't he debate again? Why didn't he show up 
at the Atlanta Press Club on Sunday. Empty chair. He wasn't there to debate. Raphael Warnock was there. The incumbent U.S. senator showed up. But the challenger did not because, you know, he needed to rest from you know all the mental Olympics he did on Friday night. Uh, horrible stuff. I, I don't know how anybody... Well, look, I know we, we talked about this last week. The only reason anybody's voting for that guy is for pure partisan reasons. And I get into this a little bit with Major and David later on. So you'll you'll hear some of the partisanship talk, uh, not necessarily directed at this race, but just, you know, across the country. But But let's call fair what is fair. He had very low expectations and he clearly met them, according to some people who are ignoring the fact that he pulled out a freaking fake police bag. And by the way, lied about the abortion thing. Let's be clear. He paid for this woman to have an abortion. And he better hope to God there aren't more evidence, there isn't more evidence out there or more accusers of a similar uh, situation. I don't want to, you know, he better hope that's the only woman he paid to have an abortion. Let's just just hope that's the only abortion he paid for, okay? Because that'll be bad for him. I, I think it's bad for him anyway, but... But again, I believe when you are running for public office, you should show up in public. And, you know, that goes for Katie Hobbs in Arizona. Uh, I know her opponent's wacky. I know her opponent will yell over her and be ridiculous. But you need to show up and debate your opponent. It goes for John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Now, here's the thing. He has a debate coming up next week. And the bar is very low for him as well. Dr. Oz has been making an issue out of his health and whether or not he is fit for office, physically fit for office. He's not questioning anything else other than his physical fitness, right? Now, if John Fetterman shows up and speaks coherently and makes strong points, he has cleared that bar. And I better hear the same praise about John Fetterman that I heard for Herschel Walker. Because quite frankly, John Fetterman is going to clear that bar. We've seen John Fetterman engage in intellectual conversations on issues that matter to people in Pennsylvania. We have not really seen that from Herschel Walker, even at that debate. We have not seen Herschel Walker address the issues that matter to people in Georgia, period. He had no solutions for hospitals closing. He had no solutions for the rising cost of education. You know what he said? If they raise tuition, they won't get federal funding. What... How? What if they need to raise tuition to meet costs like uh, insurance, pension plans, other things that change? There's variable costs that go up in universities year to year. Something has to be done to stop the ever-increasing cost of education in America. I agree with that. But we're not going to remove all federal funding from universities because they raise tuition. We have to do something holistically to deal with tuition in this country. And part of that is is reforming loans. I mean, quite frankly, when, when students can get as much loans as they want to go to college, um, you know, tuition can go up. Universities will get it. There is a supply and a demand issue. That's capitalism. We got to figure that out. But the election is coming, right? We are three weeks away. Uh, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, it's three weeks from today. That is not a long time. The polling has tightened and the Republicans appear to have recovered from the you know fog they were in after uh, the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. But when I look around the country at early voting, it's up all over the place. 
Uh, I look at registration, uh, Democrats and particularly female voters registering at a, you know, at record paces all over the country. I still have hope. But again, my hope is mostly for the U.S. Senate. And it's going to hinge on, you know, these two races I'm talking about right now. Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Raphael Warnock retaining his seat in Georgia. We got to make that happen. So if you're not doing anything uh, at the moment to be involved with those those races, please find a way, even if it's just contributing a couple dollars, but you can phone bank from wherever you are in the country. And I highly encourage you to phone bank in one of those two states and maybe even Wisconsin, because I do think that we can pick up that seat still. I know Ron Johnson is up slightly in Wisconsin. I also believe we could pick up Ohio. Um, you know, I believe that those states are winnable. And we need to pick up those seats. So we got to retain the ones we have. And we're, we're in a dogfight in New Mexico. That's another place you might want to uh, you might want to consider volunteering your time. All right, I'm going to get right to my guests, uh, Major Garrett and David Becker. Their book, The Big Truth, it's on sale now. They're coming up right after a quick break. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. I've got two guests. They've got a big book out right now called The Big Truth. Uh, they tell me it gets gets happy at the end, but it is about the state of our nation right now. David Major Garrett, uh, you know what? He's a household name. He is the chief Washington correspondent for CBS News. You've seen him. He was the White House cor- correspondent for years. Uh, you've seen him on TV. David Garrett, you might not be as familiar with. He is the, sorry, David Becker, you might not be as familiar with. He is the executive director, founder, and president of the Center for Election Responsibility. I wrote it down. I said it wrong, didn't I? <laughs> it's a nonpartisan nonprofit center for election innovation and research. There you go. Well, that's a bigger title. We got we to gotta shorten that up. I mean, Major, you, yeah, you're in I, TV. I, Can you help this guy out a little bit? I hope or? you haven't heard of me as much as Major Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> that would be There'd be something very wrong about your life if you've heard of me as much as All right. So I've been reading your book. And um, my first thought was maybe at Thanksgiving this year, I should put away the knives. Uh, Major, (laughs) you want to tell me why I shouldn't be worried that my mother is going to kill me at Thanksgiving? (laughs) Look, you wouldn't yours would not be the first family to have a dispute in the last three or four years about politics. What thing would be new this Thanksgiving you'd be doing it over a table, not via zoom. Um, look, we are uh, at a, fam- a family level, and I have tensions with even not my family necessarily, but with friends of mine that I've known for years. Uh, this is a very real factor in American political life. Um, the Trump movement has created a kind of loyalty that I believe is transcendent of party ideology or any other kind of typical attachment I've ever seen in politics. And I've been covering it at the national level since 1990. It is very much, Chris, and by the way, thank you for having us on. Oh, thank you guys for joining me. It's, it's a pleasure. 
Honestly. Wrapped up in a sense of identity. And when identity and politics become very closely matched, then politics, Chris, becomes much more psychological. And when politics becomes much more psychological, it becomes much more volatile. Mm. And that volatility is what's playing out in our everyday life right now, whenever politics is raised as an issue. And it's one of the things, this identity, this attachment, myself and Donald Trump are essentially linked. Mm. Criticize Trump, you are criticizing me personally. That is one of the things that has psychologically fueled and sustained the big lie, because it's not, it never has been, about the underlying evidence. Right. All that vanished months and months and months ago. It is now about a feverish commitment to a person and a movement, and that is wrapped up in ideology a little bit, identity principally, and self-psychology overall. Yeah. You know, I, David, I, when I talk to people... Actual Trumpers, you know, I go on a lot of conservative media. I've been on Fox now for 13 years. I, I, you know, I don't get the animosity, the personal animosity towards me that I get online. I get a lot of that online. I get death threats online, all that other nonsense. But when I actually meet them, I tend to have decent conversations with individual people. And that gives me hope. But again, I'm only I'm only halfway through your book. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, uh, is that hope misguided? Am I am I in the wrong frame of mind here? No, your hope is not misguided. It's what it's what Major and I both we, we have to tether ourselves to to some degree. I mean, look if you if you read the book, what you'll find is that Major and I both have a, a, a deep degree of uh, appreciation and appetite for the normal policy differences that occur in a democracy. A democracy has to have policy differences. We need a conservative side and a liberal side to argue things out and to hold each other accountable. That's a good thing about a democracy. The problem that we're facing right now is those arguments have to be tethered to reality. Mm. And when it comes to the 2020 election, and we lay this out in the book, I hope very well, is there is no question that the 2020 election in actuality, in reality, was the most secure, transparent, and verified election in American history. We had more paper ballots that could be recounted and audited, and in fact, they were audited in more places than ever before. We had more pre-election litigation that confirmed the rules of the game and more post-election litigation that verified the outcome than ever before. Every piece of scrutiny that applied to this election upheld this election. And it was remarkable because we act, the, the, the men and women, the professionals who run elections in this country, and we really wrote this book in large part to recognize their achievement. They somehow managed the highest turnout we've ever had in American history by a large margin in the middle of a global pandemic. And all of their work withstood all of that scrutiny. That's the reality. Yeah. And that reality needs to be recognized. And honestly, if you're a conservative, you want to recognize when you've lost an election. Right. You can try to win the next one under the right circumstances. And same if you're a liberal, right? I mean, in 2016, it would not have been constructive to think that the election had been stolen. It was not. Right. Donald Trump won a majority of votes in states that comprised the majority of the Electoral College. He right. the popular vote, but he won the presidency legitimately. And it's important that we all recognize that, because if you hold a certain political philosophy— you want to you want to establish conditions under which you can win the next election, and that's not where we are right now. David, I want to pick on one thing you said at the beginning here. 
in a democracy, people need to disagree, you know, be able to disagree on issues. I find when I talk to the average Trump voter that I have a lot more in common on the issues with them, even on even on issues that used to be fringe, like like, you know, choice. I I they tend to agree with me on the issues Unless we bring up the election, unless we you know bring up the primacy of Donald Trump, I, I feel like there is a visceral reaction to from the right to Democrats, and it's not yeah. an issues based thing at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I, I just I, I revel in you know debate and me too disagreement. I like it a lot. It's something that I that I I've been working in elections for 25 years. I'm a former. Justice Department attorney worked in voting rights and civil rights for, for many years. I like that, but um, you're exactly right. And actually, I, 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 I'll, I'll say, I mean, Major is as much an authority of the, on this as anybody. Major has been following the Trump movement since the original campaign in right. 2015 and 2016. And to, to, to uh, you know, I, 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 I've learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, how this movement is not about issues, but it's about identity, as he just said. And that identity has overtaken the normal debates we have on policy, and even in some cases, just the reality—the things you can see with your, you know, just, you know, don't believe your lying eyes, kind of thing. Right. I mean, we're not having debates over whether um, the capital gains tax should be X percent or Y percent. We're having debates over whether the sky is blue or it's yeah. Blue. It's just and that's very different. The major, you're out in the country. I mean, and you're very recognizable. I'm sure people come up to you and talk about this all the time. Uh, do you get the feeling that once Trump really steps off the stage, that some of this will subside? Some will. Well, we one of the reasons we wrote the book in addition to celebrating and upholding what these election workers and the volunteer poll workers <clears throat> who made the 2020 election the success it was. I'm not talking about outcome. I'm talking about the actual practical right, right. casting and counting of ballots. The other reason we wrote the book was to say, America, this is very dangerous ground. If we get to the point where election denialism is just another of the available interchangeable political tactics, we're done. Right. We're right. done. Right. I mean, it's it, sacred it, ground. It's sacred ground. It cannot be trespassed upon. And now a political party, a legacy party in this country is acting as if it can deny elections for a little bit and then retract that later when Trump goes away and doesn't demand it as a party litmus test. I, that won't happen. I don't see how that can it will, happen. It will, it will infect the process and it will infect the mindset of those who participate, not who are on the ballot but those who cast ballots and to protect them and their belief in their franchise, we need to treat this as the sacred space that it is. I'm not saying don't ask questions, but when your questions are asked and answered, move the hell on. Let's talk about the future, you know, that you see in this book. Now I didn't get to that part. Okay. So I haven't read that far. And <laughs> you guys tell me that there's some hope and, and, and major, uh, I'm really interested in, in how we get to that hope. It won't be easy. Uh, we're going to have some tough moments before we get to that point of hope. And by the way, that's 
astonishingly great bumper music. It's one of my favorite Bill Joel songs of all time. It's a great, great written song. By Major, I was about to say the same thing. Well, uh, you know, guys, I am a Long Islander, so it would be a sin for me not to do this show with Billy Joel, without Billy Joel bumpers. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Of course, the podcast audiences are not hearing those bumpers, so you guys are used to that generic music on the podcast. I can't afford that song on the podcast. No, no, of course not. Of course not. So, look, the midterm elections quite obviously are coming up. Eleven states are already voting by now, right now. Yeah, uh, that's a good thing. It's happening. There's no controversies. It's happening. It's a good thing. Um, but the election results are going to be close in all likelihood. Yep. And close election results mean a couple of things: higher anticipatory interest. Oh my gosh, who won? Who won? Who won? Tell me! Tell me! Tell me! Right. And the necessity of taking the time to get that ultimate answer correct. Right. Bulletproof correct. Right. And that means there's going to be, in all likelihood, two, three, maybe four days. I don't know. I don't want to predict and I don't want to project, but there's going to be some amount of time of uncertainty. Mm. David and I both believe that is going to be, that moment of uncertainty is going to be the moment of maximum danger for our country because we are afraid that those who have stoked falsely suspicions if and resentments about the 2020 election completely baselessly will use that period of unknowing to create first chaos then instability and then possibly provoking people fearing something terrible is going on mm. to act violently and we can't think about that as an abstraction any longer well no i mean it was clear it's not an abstraction i mean it's clear that that was part of the plan on january 6th they just thought that they would have more time to do it um you know i it's it's amazing to me yeah i mean i'll I'll just i'll just add really quickly and and major's exactly right and i've been a broken record on this i've been talking for quite some time all of us i don't care how liberal you are how conservative you are we all have a natural desire to know who won on election. Yes. 8.01 p.m. We want to know who won, right? That's, I that's worked totally in politics for 20 years. I wanted to know who yeah. won immediately. I, we're, we're impatient people. But the, but the And I'm the same way. But the reality is when margins are very narrow in both individual races and in the collective races that might define majority status in the House or the Senate, we might need to take some time to allow the process to work out. The process is always is as it has been, which is that the results we hear on election night and the days after are all unofficial. We take time to check and double-check and triple-check those results through a transparent process. And we might be in a situation where margins are so narrow and the margins of the House and the Senate are so narrow that we're waiting for quite some time. You know, there are 52 new congressional districts in, in California. California takes longer to count ballots than anywhere else. We don't normally notice it because California statewide elections aren't that close. So they call them very early. Right. But in individual congressional races, they might be very narrow. And so it could take days. It could actually take weeks. I mean, there is a scenario where we might be waiting until Thanksgiving to know who controls the House. Yeah. And if that happens, we just need to understand that the process is working as it should be. And be patient about that, as difficult as that is. So, David, from but your nonpartisan say, standpoint, David, from your nonpartisan standpoint, shouldn't we be doing more to make this a quicker process? Well, uh, yes. 
and the answer and and the reality is in many states they do that. The legislatures have done enough to allow for, for instance, election officials who I work with extensively to pre-process mail ballots so that they're ready to count them on election night. If you look at a state like Florida, for instance, which 20 years ago was an international laughing stock, but because of the professionalism that's been developed is now an international model and has done a really good job thanks to the county election officials, Democrats and Republicans throughout the 67 counties of Florida who've done a really, really good job. But um, they, they allow them, they give them all of the tools and resources they need to count those ballots quickly. In states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, they don't. Mm. Republican legislatures have, have, have uh, refused to do what election officials of both parties have asked them to do, which is to allow them to pre-process mail ballots in particular much earlier. And that's why things take so long. It's almost like it's they want people problem. to be upset on election night. And, and thereafter, it's almost like, like they're stoking it. Intent. Yeah, I, I, I mean, but, but they've been told and there is enough evidence that other states, both Republican and Democrats, can do can Democratic states do this well, that we could get these results sooner. Now, look, if, a mar- if, if there's a state that, that, that's decided by a margin of a few hundred votes, we just have to recognize that's going to be resolved in an adversarial process. You know, Florida is a pretty red state. They count their votes pretty quickly, and they got a lot of mail-in and early voting in that state. I don't understand why that's not a model for other red state legislatures. It actually is. I mean, it, I mean, Ohio and Georgia, for instance, do very much the same thing, but other states have not done it. Major, let me just wrap up the book. I, I tried to get you guys to tell me the hope. Right. How do we get to the hope? How do we get past this? Where are we going to be? So here's the hope. If you think about uh, big, well-studied moments of trauma in our nation's history, I would say there are two that really, really endure. One, of course, is the Civil War. The other is the Vietnam era. Mm. Many writers at the time of the Vietnam era said we had not been as divided, polarized and at each other's throat over an issue since the Civil War. Right. Right. The Civil War could not be resolved any other way. It was a structural defect of our country. It could not be compromised the way there had to be a war fought over it. The disillusionment and the division of Vietnam War was driven by the war itself. Okay. Mm. Those were two situations in which the divisions of our country could not be resolved any other way, but to fight a war or to end a war. Here's the good news. We have a division of opinion about this election in 2020 and about how we do elections, but we have no underlying problem. The Civil War, we had a huge underlying problem. Right. Vietnam, we had a huge problem, a raging war that was unwinnable and shouldn't have been prosecuted, and that became the opinion of the, the country over time. We don't actually have a structural problem. Our elections are better than they've ever been. They're more believable than they've ever been. They're more verified than they ever have been. And that's not a problem. We are creating mentally an idea that there's a problem, but in actuality, we don't have one. So it is far more solvable with no need for violence, no need for bloodshed, no need for angry rhetoric. We just have to go back to campaigning about elections, see what the tabulation is, and then move on to the next one. It's easier to solve than those other two great moments of structural division that tested the future viability of this country. Mm. That's the hope. Well, let's hope. I, let's hope somebody can bring us together 
to kind of just say, look, here's what's happening. And everybody believes what's happening at the end. You know, I honestly think that there needs to be more Republicans just basically saying, no, the election was good. It's fine. Right. Right. All right. So let's move on to this craziness of the last, you know, this last week with both the January 6th committee and, of course, now the Supreme Court, uh, um, you know, rejecting Trump on his attempt to have them continue to stall uh, DOJ's use of the classified documents that he stole uh, from the American people. Uh, You know, Major, you know, just give me your quick take uh, on what you're hearing on the Hill today. So, real quick, the Supreme Court, one sentence, denied. We're not getting involved. Everything that has happened is going through the process, and we are endorsing that process. So all the rhetoric from Trump about this being illegal, that it was being arrayed, that they trash it. No, 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 no. And you know what? Not only the Supreme Court not buying it, none of the appellate courts are buying it, and none of Trump's lawyers actually say any of those things as officers of the court. Right. So this is proceeding, and Trump's rhetoric is getting more and more wildly detached from what his lawyers are saying, what the underlying facts are, and what the judicial process is telling us. So he he is definitely, you know, trying, you know, I, I feel like the Supreme Court, whenever they get an opportunity to dunk on Trump, they will because it's cheap. It's like cheap grace. They could just do it. It doesn't cost them anything. It makes them seem more legitimate so that they go go out there and ban choice and ban marriage equality and other things that the conservatives on that court want to do long term. So I, I don't put a lot of like hope that this makes them a you know, a more balanced court that they, they, they made this thing. I think politically, it's probably the smartest thing they can do. But the January 6th committee today put out a subpoena for Donald Trump. Now, I ranted at the beginning of the show that he will not be responding to that subpoena. He will not show up, though 50 million, 60 million people watching it might be something to entice him. Uh, David, do you have any thoughts on that? So I, I think... Uh I, you know, I, I suspect that, um, you know, Donald Trump, if there's one defining characteristic of his, uh, his life, it is he has avoided trying to go under oath as much as he possibly can. Yes. Um, and my suspicion is, uh, and the January 6th committee has been very firm on this from the very beginning with every witness, you are going to go under oath and you are going to be recorded. Um, that is probably going to, uh, lead him down a path that he's followed in previous proceedings, which is essentially similarly to the Mar-a-Lago uh, search warrant proceedings, delay, 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 just right. keep running the clock out and hopefully you eventually, you, you eventually tire the other side out. Um, what he's finding is that um, that's not going to work so much anymore. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't get into psychoanalyzing the Supreme court justices that much, but the law was fairly clear here and we could see yep. in the 11th circuit, which is no, no liberal circuit by any means, right. um, had ruled very, very effectively in the Mar-a-Lago case. Similarly here, I think he's going to try to run the clock out. He's got some advantages because the clock is short. Um, the, the committee's charter ends at the end of this Congress. Um, if, uh, Republicans, take majority in the House. They've made clear that they are going to disband the January 6th select committee. Uh, they will likely render any case that might exist, even with regard to contempt that the DOJ might bring, they might render it moot. Right. But all that said, that doesn't mean I, I'm a big believer in doing the right thing regardless. Yeah. And if, 
And, and here, his testimony is absolutely relevant. And if he were truly innocent, he would be uh, enthusiastic about offering his testimony under oath um, to counter some of the other testimony that has been offered. And they're giving him an opportunity. Sure, they know the reality of this, but it's, it's you know, I think, I think he's going to run the clock out likely, but it's also going to carry with it some, uh, some baggage. Well, Major, yeah. you know, Major, you've heard him, you know, heard the stories that he's complaining about how the Republicans in the House and Senate have been failing at defending him from this January 6th committee. Do you think that that gives him any encouragement to maybe step up and do it himself? No. There's only one kind of interview since I started covering Donald Trump in August of 2015, he's ever ended prematurely. Only one kind of interview. And that's been post-2020 about the election. Mm-hmm. If he happens to accidentally sit down with someone who is not compliant, who's not kennel-fed, uh, and asks him a couple of follow-up questions, he quits. He just quits. Yeah. He ends the interview. Because there's no there there. And he can't afford to have that knowledge exposed. He can't. Yeah. So he won't. He won't. He will not submit to these questions under oath or any other way because he can't sustain it. And the lack of being able to sustain it is something he knows in his marrow. So it can't be that that veil is lifted and all the world see that there's nothing there. It is. It is amazing. The perfect opportunity. It would be the perfect Trumpian opportunity. And when he doesn't take it, a lot of people will say, hmm, I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I keep telling everybody and and David, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, you, you look at this for a living. Numbers don't have to move all that much in America. Uh, you don't need to convince 50% of Republicans not to support Trump or a Trump-like candidate. You need to, you know, you need to get like one or 2% of them to stop reporting, supporting them. Yeah. I mean, no, no block is monolithic here. Major is exactly right. I mean, I, Major, Major knows Trump and has, has been around Trump for some time and understands him really well. But, uh, you know, I, I think back, you know, Trump is Trump has been trying to avoid a deposition that he's about to have to take probably next week. Yeah, it looks like in a New York civil case. He, you know, I think back there was a point in time last year where Donald Trump offered to debate anybody on the election and to prove that the election was stolen. Um, I am not one to do these kinds of things. I actually try to stay out of these political messes. I try to stay out of kind right. of wrestling with pigs situation. But I couldn't help myself. I, 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 you know, I tweeted at him, um, and I, I offered, as as did many others, to debate him on this. And uh, he, of course, didn't respond, and then tweeted out a couple weeks later that there were no takers when there were actually hundreds. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I responded uh, to that tweet too. By the way, I think you know, I was like, you know, I'm a political exactly. pundit. I love those opportunities. <laughs> so, it's, you know. so I, I, one thing I know is I know elections. I can talk about why this election was secure. I can talk about every single thing that happened in this election. Um, so I would have relished that opportunity, but it's all a show for him. And Major is exactly right. Major has this just down pat, which is that he doesn't actually want an opportunity to prove his case. Right. Because probably at some point deep down, as much as I don't like to psychoanalyze people, he, he, he knows he's not capable of defending this completely fabricated 
reality well, he's created. Well, the commission made it pretty clear today. He absolutely knew he lost the election. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and the point mm-hmm. that really got to me was when he said to one of his aides, let's leave that problem for the next guy. It's his problem now. And that was before right. January 6th. So, you know, Major, I mean, that if I'm going to psychologically, I only have a minute or so left with you guys, and I won't let you plug away here. Uh, but I would say that that's really it. I, look, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Major, why don't you give the plugs for the book? And David, after that, give the plug for the center. Sure. The book is called uh, <clears throat> The Big Truth. It's not a religious book. That would be the biggest truth. So, <laughs> truth. Uh, upholding democracy in the age of the big lie. And it is your self-defense manual for these times. If you want to make the case to your friends, your family, if you want to survive Thanksgiving and not have to have plastic forks and knives, buy the book. There you go. And David, tell us about the center. uh, Thank you so much, Chris. I run the nonpartisan nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. We're at electioninnovation.org. I'm at Becker David J on Twitter. Um, we work with election officials across the political spectrum. I work with conservative Republicans, liberal Democrats, to make sure that elections are secure and transparent and accessible. And again, the professionals who need support, who run elections, have that support. They've experienced unprecedented threats and harassment. They need support more than ever. Well, so check out the November. Check out the book. Yeah. Check out the center. The Car Pro Show podcast is available on iHeart, Apple, and Spotify. I can't take my husband anywhere. He's constantly behaving like a five-year-old, snorting, joking, yapping with strangers. It's so embarrassing. But the one period when he's fully engrossed in anything is if he's listening to the Car Pro Show podcast. Here they are now on the Car Pro Show. He gets to hear Jerry and Kevin share all the latest and greatest news and information about the CarPro Friends universe, reviews and commentary on all the newer vehicle lineups from every major brand, stories and testimonials about ultimate car buying experiences through CarPro.com, and certified CarPro Friends at dealers nationwide. My only regret is when this two-hour break from you-know-who ends. Save yourself! Grab some me time by tuning into the CarPro Show podcast on your device anytime, anywhere. Listen to the CarPro Show on iHeart, Apple, and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by CarPro.com, where you now have a friend in the car buying business. CarPro.com. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Major Garrett and David Becker. Check out their book, The Big Truth. It is available wherever you get books. Uh, So check it out. And I'll be tweeting out their Twitter handles. I think Major's doing better than me on Twitter. David's a little behind me, but uh, follow them. Uh, They've obviously got some good ideas on what's going on in this world. And this world is ever-changing. And we need to be on guard for those changes. I'm just going to reiterate what I started the show with tonight. Get active now. It's three weeks. It is a sprint from here on out. We got to work hard, round the clock. Don't just tweet. Don't just say things. Give some money if you can. If you can't. Give your time. It is very important. These races, and and by the way, I think you should be giving your time and your money if you can. If you can afford it, both the time. I know a lot of people work hard. You're probably listening to this podcast on your third shift, some people, and I get it. But do what you can. Tell your friends. Write a letter to somebody. If you got a friend in Georgia, call them. Say, look, democracy's at stake. Make sure you vote. It's very important. Got a friend in Arizona? Let them know. Katie Hobbs, Mark Kelly, they need your vote. 
Got a friend in Pennsylvania. Man, that is an important state. Fetterman, 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 Fetterman. Again, he's doing a debate next week. Can't wait. Going to be fun. It'll be after I tape the podcast, so it'll probably be two weeks before I talk about that. But uh, we will talk about it. Trust me, we will. All right, I want to remind you now, as I always do, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.